You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl, and I want to do a lecture today with the um, title uh, on the perfect croissant, or the subtitle on the problem of philosophical learning. Now, I'm going to do this in two parts. Um, the reason is it's uh, rather long, and so I'm going to do it in, in two parts. This lecture was uh, originally published in a journal called Logos in the winter of 2002. The first part of it, I'm going to cite uh, three passages I want you to remember. And the first one is from Plato's dialogue called The Sophist, in which he says, quote, the main character in this was called a visitor from Elias, Aliyah. And he says, but if an important issue needs to be worked out well, then, as everybody has long thought, you need to practice uh, on unimportant, easier issues first. So, th uh, so that's my advice uh, to us now, Theotetus. Since we think it's hard to hunt down and to deal with uh, this kind of, this essence of the sophist, what he is, we ought to practice our method of hunting on something easier. Uh, first, uh, unless you can tell me about another way uh, that's somewhat more promising. And Theotetus says, I can't. So the most important thing is that we find uh, our way to the difficult things by starting with the less difficult things. The second citation is from uh, even Moore's book, by a biography really called a little a bit of learning or a little learning is called written in 1964 and he says from the first uh, I regarded Oxford as a place for uh, to be inhabited and enjoyed for itself and not as a uh, preparation for uh, anywhere else at Oxford I was uh, reborn in full youth my uh, absurdities were those of uh, exuberance and naivete, uh, not of uh, spurious uh, sophistication. I wanted to uh, do everything and to know everyone, but not with any ambition uh, to uh, uh, insinuate myself into fashionable London or to influence uh, friends who should uh, uh, prosper uh, my further any further career. My interests were as narrow as the ancient walls. I wanted to taste everything Oxford could offer and consume as much as I could hold. The end of the quote. And the final quotation is from uh, Yves Simon's book called The General Theory of Authority, a very, a very fine book in which he says, Quote, no spontaneous operation of intellectual uh, relations protects the young philosopher against the risk of delivering his soul uh, to error by choosing his teachers um, infelicitously, the end of the quote. So one can uh, get into serious trouble by not really choosing the right professors or teachers. So the perfect breakfast, it seems to me, is a freshly baked, genuine butter croissant with a cup of coffee or chocolate. But the perfect croissant is hard to come by, especially in the United States, at least as, so therefore if we're not in, in France, where it seems to be miraculously to reappear every morning at almost any cafe. We have croissants at breakfast where I live. They are rather smallish 
not very flaky, generally doughy, flat tasting, though certainly not uh, inedible. I've kept my eyes open for the perfect croissant. Walter Kerr once said that we should never eat bad ice cream, but we may uh, have to eat bad bread or even dried out croissants to stay alive. But ice cream and croissants are eaten primarily because they are tasty and delicious. Uh, there is nothing uh, sybaritic or epicurean about this truth. It is simply an acknowledgement of the being of the very thing itself. We do not need either ice cream or our croissants, and yet the things we do not need are often symbolic of the best part of our nature. Leon Cass, in his book, The Hungry Soul, Eating and the Perfection of Our Nature, uh, has spelled out this principle with some um, elegance. We are not only beings who uh, feed or eat, but beings who dine together. Our bodies and uh, lives are so uh, attuned that they respond to our inner soul. Uh, we can make matters uh, we can make matter tasty, uh, beautiful if we want. And this uh, making is perhaps our highest vocation in this world, as Plato taught us, when something that is, by being what it is, leads us to what is beautiful. At the beginning of the second book of the Republic, we find a famous conversation between Socrates, Glaucon, and his brother Edinantos about the praise of justice for its own sake. The two young men, Plato's brothers, are highly commended by Socrates for being able to state the case against justice so well but still, uh, they were not convinced by it. Thus, they wanted to listen to the philosopher explain why a uh, worthy life was a good thing, even if one suffered for it, or even if no reward resulted pr from it. What interests me here are the results that the young Glaucon gives to Socrates about how he sees the need for what I call philosophical learning. Glaucon begins the conversation. Tell me, do you think there is a kind of good uh, we welcome, not because we uh, desire what comes from it, but because we welcome it uh, for its own sake? Joy, for instance, he says and all of the um, harmless pleasures, we have no, which have no results beyond the joy of having them. And Socrates acknowledges the existence of such things. And Glaucon continues, And is there a kind of good we like for its own sake, and also for the sake uh, that comes uh, from it, knowing? for example, and seeing and being healthy. Joy, we note, is something for its own sake. There are indeed pleasures that have no uh, results beyond the joy of having, of having them. And joy is what we possess when we have what we love, when what we love is what is and it's Cause. Several years ago, down on N Street in Washington, just before Wisconsin Avenue, uh, to continue this analogy, there was a small patisserie called La Au Croissant Show, meaning the warm croissant. And after some uh, shopping around, I decided that the croissants at this little shop uh, uh, proved to be 
not only the best in Washington, but surprisingly the cheapest. The shop had had tables outside the uh, pleasant patio on which uh, to eat them at leisure. Even on a cold morning, it was worth uh, doing. The uh, patisserie was uh, run by a family, either Spanish or French-speaking. I never quite was sure. I was never quite sure. I was a uh, frequent patron. The place was uh, to croissants what uh, the National Gallery is to art. Much to my chagrin one morning, this shop closed. The place it occupied uh, has since been engaged by four or five upscale restaurants, none of which has made it. About six months after the closing of Vauquachon's show, uh, someone mentioned <clears throat> that it had opened down the, uh, the block further on Wisconsin Avenue. Sure enough, there it was. But alas, there was, uh, uh, before, too much longer, some problem with the restaurant next door closed the uh, place down again. I have uh, shopped around subsequently uh, for several years for the perfect croissant. As I have uh, intimated, there's really not much sense in eating a croissant unless it is very good, uh, though one should be careful of uh, demanding such perfection that uh, he misses uh, in this life the fact that uh, what is is good even if it's not perfect. The search for perfection does not necessarily exclude the less than perfect, a principle uh, if we think about it, that is very that is very charter of our own being in this world of the possibility uh, that we too uh, are in existence uh, experiencing joy and delight um, uh, and we begin to have intimations of what is, uh, of the what exists uh, in light and in excellence when we begin to understand that there simply are that good things which are not perfect. Not too long ago, moreover, in pursuit of this, to be sure, mad dream of the perfect croissant, I was out on uh, Rockville Pike when I noticed a local La Madeleine, one of the chains of French bakeries uh, in the area. Another can be found uh, alas, with the uh, same uh, existential results over on M Street. One morning, with uh, uh, great anticipation, I walked over to the one in Rockville Pike, uh, near to where I had been staying at Georgetown uh, Preparatory School. I purchased one of their croissants and a cup of coffee uh, in the uh, to be eaten outside, but much to my dismay, the uh, properly flaky, uh, visually perfect croissant did not taste very good. It uh, seems not to be to have been made with butter, but I am not sure of this uh, culinary uh, problem. I have tried other French uh, uh, bakeries. Uh, bakery chains in the Washington area, Le Bille de France, uh, with the same unhappy result. Though again, I ate them uh, as they were not terrible. In fact, I have been somewhat uh, frustrated with the saga of less than great croissants. I began to, uh, I began to wonder if there is not revealed here a deeper problem of soul than we might at first realize. In seeking the perfect croissant, a worthy uh, enterprise, as it seems to me, I wonder uh, what indeed uh, am I uh, looking for in all that I do? It is a question that ought to arise in the pursuit of any real good, I think.
including the perfect croissant. A couple of weeks ago on campus, I came across a young French girl who was in one of my classes, and she was carrying a cake box. And she told me that she found a new French patisserie on Wisconsin and Q Street called Café Poupon. I had never noticed it, and evidently uh, they put up unsold cakes uh, for sale at half price at 4 p.m. every day. And naturally, a couple of days later, I hastened with great eagerness over to uh, sample the product, the croissant. And much to my delight, the lady behind the counter was the very one uh, who used to run the old uh, old croissant show. However, the croissant I uh, sampled was not just perfect. My heart was both delighted to find the place uh, with real croissants and uh, uh, broken uh, that it was not the, the best or the most perfect. Why am I beginning these thoughts on philosophical learning with this tale of my uh, search for the perfect croissant? It is a very platonic uh, enterprise, of course. And the gorgeous Plato convincingly compares orators uh, to the uh, products of pastry chef, uh, chefs, uh, by extension to the uh, bakery of, uh, baker of croissants. Uh, Plato is troubled that uh, elegance of language or taste, uh, elegance of language or taste, can deflect can deflect us from uh, the truth or the uh, cause of what is beautiful. We can indeed uh, separate pleasure from the reality in which it exists and gives it its purpose. Yet we know <clears throat> that Socrates himself was the greatest, the greatest of orators who sought to persuade us duly to seek what is good and what is beautiful uh, through the things that are. To find things that are perfect, it seems we must begin with things less than perfect. Socrates is sometimes uh, uh, accused of being so absorbed by the perfect, by the best, that he shows a certain uh, contempt for ordinary changing realities. But I think this accusation is not a correct reading of Socrates. Even in learning, he tells us uh, in the Sophist, to begin, uh, he tells us to begin uh, in that dialogue with the easier thing. Socrates always denied that he was a teacher, however much the fathers of Carmides and Theages in the dialogues named after them begged him to take charge of their sons, to teach them how to live. <clears throat> but if even Socrates, the philosopher, did not uh, teach, from whom do we learn? Surely he uh, did not mean that there are no teachers, and if no teachers, no uh, students, uh, though this is what he implies, in the Mino. The subject that I want to propose here uh, is precisely that of philosophical learning. Learning that about the highest things and learning about the whole of what is. Surely nothing can be more important than such uh, a learning, uh, whatever else uh, is important. Learning is not merely a question of truth. It is also a question of choosing the truth when we begin to know it. Knowledge is, as Socrates said, one of those things that both cause joy and delight for its own sake, but is also useful for other things. There is a paradox here 
of more than passing significance. For it is uh, possible for us to deny that the good is good or the beautiful is beautiful, even when either one stands before us. Part of the reason we can uh, make this uh, denial is because what is uh, finally beautiful is not uh, beauty itself, uh, even when it is really uh, beautiful. So it, what is beautiful before us, that is to say, is not beauty itself, so some beautiful thing. Even the perfect croissant points beyond itself, uh, unsettles us. It too should be uh, eaten and enjoyed and not just preserved in some bakery museum. The other reason that we can uh, deny what is good or beautiful, even when it is before us uh, in its splendor, is that we can still manage to direct our souls, our uh, attention, to some other lesser good or beauty. We can absorb ourselves in particular goods, real goods, but not the good. And we can refuse to examine ourselves about it. The unexamined life is not worth living, to cite a famous phrase of Socrates in the Apology. It can make us content with some real but disordered good that will eventually corrupt us and corrupt our souls. We choose not to follow it uh, to its end, the finite beauty that initially attracts us. As uh, Aristotle shows us in the first uh, book of the Ethics, all the definitions of good that come up within our pursuit of happiness have real worth, so all of the different definitions. Uh, ironically, we can do nothing wrong unless we also do something uh, uh, that is right. But this something right is out of order. We fail to put something into uh, in the good that ought to be there. Evil is the lack of a good that ought to be there, as a famous definition of Augustine goes. What I want to suggest is that if we choose not to learn what is fundamental, we will indeed not learn it. Or, to put it another way around, we can choose uh, as our end, as our definition of happiness, as it applies to us and defines all that we uh, deliberate and decide upon as something that will uh, betray us and betray the best in us in the end. And we can choose that as our good. As Aristotle put it, if we uh, choose as our end anything but the contemplation, anything but contemplation, uh, anything but knowledge of what is for its own sake, uh, we will fail uh, not merely ourselves, but uh, one another. Indeed, we will misjudge our place in the cosmos as precisely the microcosmoi, the beings in whom uh, something of everything exists, which is what the word microcosmos means, a little bit of the cosmos. We are not gods, nor uh, are we beasts. We are uh, precisely the mortals, the finite beings who need not exist but nonetheless who do exist and who do act uh, following our own uh, peculiar kind of existence. <clears throat> when we choose what is good, we are the best uh, of the animals. And when we choose badly, we are the worst. Again, recall Aristotle. One of the charges against Socrates was uh, that he corrupted the youth. He denied it. The youth who listened to him uh, did so uh, of their own accord as a kind of amusement, 
Socrates, unlike modern professors, never took money for anything, especially teaching. Uh, the sophists did receive fees for teaching, whether what they taught was true or not. For the effort, for the effort, they are sometimes called the first university professor, the first humanist. The compliment is enigmatic. Aristotle tells us not to listen to those uh, intellectuals who, being a human, tell us to listen to only human and mortal things. What is true is simply free. It can bear no cost. Truth as such cannot be uh, purchased or copyrighted. Our highest conversations thus are not only free, but of things uh, we have uh, in common, of things whose origin is not ourselves, even though directed to our minds, that we might know them. No wonder Plato said uh, that when we first come to know something, our immediate instinct is to hurry out and to tell someone about it when we uh, first learn something and think it's important. Moreover, Socrates humbly claimed that he only knew what he did not know, even though the old accusers at the beginning of the apology charged that he uh, made the weaker argument seem the stronger. The philosopher, no doubt, is perplexed, and he perplexes the non-philosopher. The non-philosopher wants to uh, uh, drive him, or wants to drive the philosopher out of the city, or to keep him uh, strictly private, so he can't bother anybody. The philosopher, uh, when too proud, moreover, is tempted to see this um, common uh, man perplexity as a kind of his own um, success, uh, his own uh, power. Yet it is not so. Vision and clarity uh, are his calling. The pure of heart will see God, as the Beatitude says. The blind cannot lead the blind. The philosopher is not at home in existing cities, even when he must live in them. But without him, cities uh, know only themselves. They exclude the high culture that asks, uh, asks uh, whether what they are is what they ought to be. The high culture, the city in speech, transcends all existing cities and judges them uh, without repudiating their, their need. This is the high vocation of philosophical learning, to plant the city in speech in each of our souls so that we can be free of what is not true, of what is not good. This vocation can uh, happen even in the worst regimes, uh, where evil must uh, be mostly suffered. So you can't have really bad regimes that can be controlled. You can't escape them very often. So you can only suffer them. It can be ignored in the best regime, when pleasure is separated uh, from that in which it exists uh, in proper order. So. In the best regime, you can still separate pleasure from the object of the pleasure, and uh, the regime won't prevent you from doing this. The youth who are said to be corrupted by Socrates' activities in Athens were not his pupils. They listened to him in the streets, to be sure, but mostly as a form of afternoon entertainment. They had nothing better to do. They were escaping the discipline of their families. Uh, they delighted in what was uh, uh, odd and uh, infamous or provoking, or uh, whatever it was. 
Socrates is taking, uh, talking uh, to important Athenians in pursuit of his Delphic vocation to know himself was the best uh, show in town. The sons went home after listening to Socrates uh, examine their fathers and um, and businessmen, uh, and the poet, and the lawyer. Uh, So that's what they were. That's what makes up a city, these offices, as it were. And the young sons are listening to Socrates question their father. The sons were eager to imitate the philosophers, and so uh, they tried out their newfangled skills of rhetoric on their fathers, uh, the rulers who were the rulers of the city. Uh, this seemed uh, second-hand philosophy, only infuriated the fathers and uh, incited them against Socrates as the one who corrupts the youth and uh, threw them the city. The youth uh, who followed Socrates, if any did, uh, undermined the existing city. It was probable um, that this uh, domestic fury uh, between father and son, uh, more than anything else, was the uh, was what was responsible for the Socrates' legal death. His death posed and still posed the problem of truth uh, to the city uh, that does not like to hear it. Thus, Socrates chose to live a private life as long as he could. He knew he was not safe among those who held power, but not true. He also hoped uh, that some who heard him uh, would carry on his teaching because the fathers uh, would kill the philosopher, but not their sons. Uh, The end of the first part of the lecture on the croissant. This is uh, Father James Shaw, and I want to continue with the lecture on the perfect croissant. Um, The lecture really is on philosophical learning, and the first half of it went through the whole discussion about uh, Plato and um, the notion that there is a effort uh, understanding in all things that there is something uh, that reaches perfection, and yet, in a certain sense, we live in a world which didn't. And that gets into a whole question about uh, philosophy and Socrates. And so I want to continue um, with the discussion. We were talking about um, Socrates uh, was desired, was decided that he had to live a private life because if he'd lived a public life, he would have been executed uh, before he was. So we continue with uh, this particular uh, uh, discussion. So in one sense, no doubt, Socrates did corrupt the youth in an effort to learn the truth. Uh, The truth can uh, be called a corruption uh, when a city, uh, uh, when it can be in a city founded on wants and passions. So, ironically, um, uh, in a bad city, Socrates would be called corrupt because he wasn't uh, conforming to the order of a bad city, which is what his whole point was. Socrates calls his city a noble lie because all who hear it, uh, besides the philosopher himself, will think it untrue. So, it is true, but everybody hears it because their souls are disordered, think it's untrue. So he found his divine vocation to examine whether he was indeed, as the oracle said, the wisest man in Greece, something he at first doubted. But in the process, he revealed that the pillars of the palace, the poet, the lawyer, and the craftsmen did not know more than their own uh, narrow specialization. And they thought that on the basis of this alone, they were wise, which they weren't. 
The existing city uh, could not, however, be passed on in the same form uh, to the next generation if it lost uh, confidence in the city, city's own actual foundation, a founding that differed from the principles of the city and speech. So the existing city and the city and speech are founded on different uh, principles. Uh, this doubting of the city's worth was the effect of Socrates' example. He found another city that must be uh, founded again and again in the souls of potential philosophers, which is the point of reading Plato. The careful reading of Plato is the beginning of the new found founding in any existing city. An education that does not end here in the city in speech is not worth having. Socrates' way of life made him appear odd, uncivic. He seemed like a fool or a madman. Existing cities, especially democracies, were always considerably less than perfect. They were the best of the worst regimes, as Aristotle said. They were also places of danger to the philosopher. To be sure, in a regime of unprincipled liberty, such as Athens, it was difficult, as I said, to tell the difference between a fool and a philosopher, because there was no principle by which one was different from the other. They both had odd ideas. The philosophers seemed silly, eccentric, crazy. Democratic freedom meant that there were no common principles of distinction. Liberty means uh, doing what one wanted to do, not what was right. Right and wrong had no objective distinction. Both Fool and philosopher seemed equally quaint in the existing city, since there was no standard or measure uh, by which we could uh, distinguish them one from another. In a disordered regime, the good man is abnormal. The fool seems wise. And this is why uh, uh, democracies prefer what is average even what is bizarre to what is true. The fluctuating average be, uh, average becomes the norm of truth. Much evil is justified on the grounds that everyone lies, cheats, and steals. This is the teaching of Machiavelli, a teaching already recognized as a corruption, uh, as a corruption in the first book Plato's Republic, in principle. Socrates was safe in Athens only if he continued a private, as a private citizen, but because he was imitated by the youth, the potential philosophers, he was forced against his wishes into court, a setting unfamiliar to him as he told the jurors of Athens. On the day before his trial, he had tried to escape from Miletus, the poet, uh, and his charge of impiety, uh, charged, Miletus charged Socrates with impiety. And um, uh, Socrates tried to learn from Euthyphro, in that dialogue called the Euthyphro, how to be pious. But Euthyphro was himself uh, impious trying in the court to accuse his own father of murder. He did not seem either to know what piety was or how to teach it. When on the next day the poet Miletus led the court against him, Socrates could honestly claim that he tried to learn what piety was in order to uh, reject the claim that he was impious. Thus, Socrates was accused of impiety, 
of being an atheist, of not believing in the gods of the city. In a very sophisticated argument, he denied the accusation. He believed in spirit. He knew where philosophy led of beyond matter to uh, uh, immateriality, to the immortality of the soul, to what is. But Socrates' philosophy did lead him to oppose some of the accounts in Homer and Hesiod about the uh, scandalous deeds of some of the gods of Athens. The education of Greeks corrupted its youth uh, when they read its uh, noblest uh, and most enchanting literature. Thus, Homer charmed us, uh, who did not yet know the philosophical life. Thus, the most famous student of Socrates, Plato, would have to find a way to charm us even more than Homer in order to counteract <clears throat> the effects of the uh, poetry of that educated Greece. <clears throat> this same poetry uh, also corrupted it, Socrates thought. Uh, we must find a city in speech and uh, reproduce it in our own souls if we are to uh, find a charm uh, that uh, is beyond Homer, whose charm not even Socrates denied. The problem of philosophical learning, as I call it, begins with any awareness that to be ourselves, we are being called by something beyond ourselves. This is, as it were, the problem of the perfect croissant of the human, on the human level. And our capacity to be called out of ourselves uh, begins with our sudden realization that we cannot fully explain ourselves to ourselves. The careful reading of the account of the young Plato on the death of his mentor, Socrates, is the first step in the effort to find a solution, a source that would explain ourselves when we are, in some sense, an enigma to ourselves. <clears throat> in any university, reading of Plato is also a judge of that same university. Indeed, unless there is a reading of Plato, there is no university, and it is best to escape from any institution that does not know this, does not live it. In spite of what he sometimes implies, Plato was also a poet. His charm, his uh, oratory, call us out of ourselves, call us out of existing cities, out of existing uh, academies. On September 11th, uh, 2000, John Paul II received an audience in Rome, the rector, faculty, and students of the Jagiellonian uh, University in Krakow, his beloved school. In his address to the, uh, these Polish compatriots, the Pope recalled the words uh, that he used in his visit to Krakow in 1997, quote, the duty of an academic institution, the Holy Father himself, a master teacher, told his Polish friends, in a certain sense, to give birth to souls or in souls for the sake of knowing, for the sake of knowledge and wisdom, to shape minds and hearts. The task cannot be achieved other than through a generous service to the truth, revealing it and passing it on to others. The end of the quote. Academic institutions have duties, purposes. There are things to be passed on. In this brief passage, we catch the words of Plato uh, to give birth in souls. We catch the spirit of Pascal 
that knowledge includes the heart. We are reminded that truth is the object or purpose of the intellect. And we even see the words of St. Thomas, the contemplata trotere, that truth is to be pondered first in our souls and then it is to be passed on to others. What is first contemplated is to be passed on. But we must first experience the joy of knowledge itself in our own souls. If we ever have an exhilarating experience of truth in our souls, we cannot but seek to tell others of it, to pass it on. We are not first to read uh, these words uh, in terms of obligation, though we cannot but be uh, mindful of the end of the Gospels that command a going forth and teaching all nations. There is a superabundance to truth as it as to being. The first reaction we have to truth is simply a delight that that, that uh, it is, that what is, is. As Plato said, the truth is to say of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not. The second reaction to truth is, as I have noted, the almost irreversible desire to tell someone about it. It wants to flow out of us. It assumes that others seek it and that we belong to a kind, uh, to a kind of being that seeks to know. It implies that there is something into which we are all taken up, secured, and made worthy. The French historian Régine Pernot recounts with some amusement a conference of French intellectuals devoted to the topic, Were the Middle Ages Civilized? She noted that this question seems to have been asked with little sense of humor or irony. These academics seemed incapable of seeing their own blindness. The, quote, the discussion on the Middle Ages took place in Paris on the Rue Madame, Pernod recalled. One hopes, she adds, for the uh, moral comfort of the participants that none of them, in order to return to his residences, had to pass by Notre Dame de Paris. He might have uh, felt a certain uh, uneasiness, but no, let us uh, reassure ourselves. An employed academic, academic is, in any case, physically incapable of seeing what is not in conformity with the profession uh, his brains exude. In other words, that the uh, academic uh, doesn't see what is not part of his own theory. And thus he would not, in any case, have seen Notre Dame, even if his pathway took him uh, to the uh, Place de Paris, uh, where, where the cathedral exists. In the quote. Even though I am, to use Pernod's ironic phrase, an employed academic, albeit with a vow of poverty, her words get to the heart of what I want to emphasize here, namely the peculiar blindness by which we do not see what is in fact there. We can actually talk in front of Notre Dame and wonder if the Middle Ages, which built Notre Dame, were civilized. The real question is whether we, with our question, are civilized. And most often, as Aristotle also had observed, the reason we do not see things, the reason we are blind to what is, 
is largely caused by our own theories, by our own choices of how we live. What is at stake, we might ask ourselves, when we uh, attend a university and interview our youth? Callicles, the smooth, dangerous politician in Plato's Gorgias, said that he even enjoyed studying philosophy in college. But for heaven's sake, we put it away when we reach a political power uh, that cannot be impeded by philosophical musings with young academics, with young scholars. Even Moore's autobiography was aptly entitled A Little Learning, a title intended, without saying so, to recall from Alexander Pope that a little learning is a dangerous thing. Actually, much learning can be an even more dangerous thing. We already recalled how the um, little learning of the uh, potential philosophers about Socrates led him uh, into considerable danger. Law himself was delighted at his arrival at Oxford. He wanted to enjoy, enjoy it for its own sake, and he wanted to um, do everything uh, and to know everything, and yes, to taste everything. And yet, to do such things well, indeed, to do them at all, we need to be taught. Not all philosophers are worthy. Any city knows that at the origins of its public disorders, we find primarily the disordered souls of its own teachers and philosophers. But it's not the job of the politician um, to uh, confute philosophers whose own soul is disordered, though it is his task to use his common sense to protect the citizens from the aberrations of the philosophers. Simone's warning that nothing can protect a potential philosopher from giving himself to an errant academic is well taken. We are not to forget the primal vice of pride and how it relates to the most intelligent of the angels. The ultimate difference between the philosopher and the tyrant is not that one is more intelligent than the other. Rather, it has to do with what good the one or the other chooses. And the root of all sin and disorder is the choice of oneself as the cause of being, as the cause of all immoral and intellectual distinctions. There are, I think, uh, these are, I think, sobering words that we do not allow us, that do not allow us to be naive about our lot, about the drama into which we are born, about the city in which we live, especially if we do not know of the city in speech, the civitas dei, that orders our soul. Aristotle speaks in the Ethics of what happens when politician, a politician is wholly absorbed in politics. He knows nothing of the pleasures of learning, of philosophy, of philosophy, so that in its spiritual emptiness, his own soul turns to uh, passions and pleasures of this world. We are wont to admit that uh, politics is the uh, full-time occupation, a wholly absorbing profession, but it is a dangerous one, as Plato has often reminded us, when it is the only uh, occupation uh, that we have, when we have only the existing city and not the city in speech in our souls. The problem of philosophical learning lies here, I think. In Western literature, we find 
a theme that associates life and drama. Indeed, it is often the drama that enables us to see or to appreciate what life is about. In its ordinariness, we may uh, easily uh, fail to see uh, the drama of our lives. This is why it is said that we truly live at the higher level when we contemplate life as a drama. This is the theme from Plato himself. Alan Bloom put it this way in his Shakespeare's Politics, quote, What is essentially human is revealed in the extreme. We understand ourselves better than what we might be. In a way, the spectators live more truly uh, when they are uh, watching a Shakespearean play than in their daily lives, which are so much uh, determined by the accidents of time and space. Quote. <clears throat> it is the opportunity to live more truly that defines us uh, perhaps more than anything else, even when all our lives uh, have been uh, have their own worthiness, even so all lives will have some worthiness, but the ones that um, kind of live at their best, see what they are at the best. When Sally was about one year old, her mother uh, ordered Charlie Brown to walk uh, her around the neighborhood uh, in a stroller. As a result of his reluctant uh, obedience, Charlie could not manage the baseball team. And when he walked Sally over to the game, uh, the team uh, shouted out at uh, him uh, for uh, abandoning them, and they were quite annoyed. Sally, who was just uh, beginning to talk, was trying was was taking this all in, and she was a problem. Finally, near the end of the game, when the team still had a chance to win it, Charlie could uh, pinch hit. He decided to rush Sally back home, grab his glove and his bat, and return as a hero to save the team. He tells the perplexed Sally, I'm sorry I can't push you anymore, Sally, but I have to go and save the team from defeat. We see him in the next uh, scene, rushing back to the field, yelling, here I am, team. Here comes your faithful manager. The last scene shows baby Sally near her front steps, pondering the mysteries of why she, at one year old, has caused such uh, so many problems. And she says to herself, I had no idea that life was to be filled with such a drama. Quote. And this is the real point of our human lot, is it not? We really have no idea of the drama of our existence in time. Needless to say, when Charlie got back uh, onto the field and up to the plate, he struck out, much to the derision uh, of the very team uh, uh, his uh, disobedience was. Uh, trying to save. We have no idea that our lives could be uh, so filled with such drama. Just because we seek the highest thing, it does not follow that we do not uh, uh, pursue and enjoy other things. Aristotle had it about right. Whenever someone regards as his being, or his end, or the end for which he chooses to be alive. That is the activity he wishes to pursue in his friend's company. Hence, some friends uh, drink together, others play dice, while others do gymnastics and go hunting or do philosophy. They spend their days together 
on whatever pursuit in life they like most. For since they want to live with their friends, they share the actions in which they find the common uh, the common life. The end of the quote. Some do philosophize together. What, in conclusion, would be the worst thing we could imagine for ourselves? Socrates asked Adiamantos, Don't you know that a true falsehood is, if one uh, may call it that, is hated by all uh, gods and humanity? all the gods and the humans. Edimantas wondered uh, what this might mean. I mean that uh, no one is willing um, to tell falsehoods to the most important part of himself about the most important thing. But of all places, he is uh, most um, afraid to have falsehood there in his soul. End of the quote. Edimantas still does not quite get it. That is because you think I am stating something deep, Socrates replied. I am simply mean that to be false to one's own soul about the things uh, that are, to be ignorant and to have and hold falsehoods there as what everyone would least of all accept, uh, for everyone hates a falsehood in that place most of all in the end of the quote. Plato often ends things with a prayer. Let me cite the one at the end of the Phaedrus. Quote, O dear Pan and all of the other gods of this place, Grant that I may be beautiful inside. Let all my external uh, possessions be in friendly harmony with what is within. May I consider uh, the wise man rich. And as for gods, as for gold, let me have as much as a moderate man could bear and carry within him. The end of the quote. And this is where the pursuit of the perfect croissant leads, to a philosophical learning that, having inspired and guided us to be a beautiful inside, incites us to take all things uh, as beautiful as the being that they are allows us to be. All beauty is unsettling. We have, because of it, restless hearts. As that great uh, um, African lover of uh, Plato told us in Augustine's Confessions. In the laws, the Athenian stranger tells us that the purpose of war is peace and order. The wise man is rich, is himself rich in wisdom. None of us know in advance that life could be filled with such drama. No one is willing to tell falsehoods uh, to the most important part of himself about the most important things. And yet, the sophists tell us that they can teach us whatever we want to know, whether good or bad, without themselves being good or bad. Some friends drink together, others play dice, do gymnastics, go hunting, still others do philosophy. Callicles said that we should put philosophy aside when we are young because politics uh, is too serious uh, for such adult playing. Socrates, the philosopher, was killed by Athens, the democracy, in 399 B.C. The problem of philosophic learning 
abides in our souls only if we build a city in speech there where we do not uh, uh, where we do not want to lie to ourselves about what is. On finishing the main argument of this reflection, I was in a dental office in Chevy Chase, Maryland, waiting to have a tooth filled. I looked at the magazine called Biography. Not much there, but an article on, uh, there was an article though on F. Scott Fitzgerald. I next picked up the October 2000 issue of, um, of Gourmet magazine, uh, which someone had just put down. In thumbing through the uh, pages, uh, what do I uh, see but an article on great croissants? How to tell them, how to make them, and how to distinguish them. And after I explained my interest, the lady at the dental office kindly gave me the magazine. In it, I read, quote, Delicately crisp outside, light yet chewy inside. Enough sugar uh, to accentuate the butter's sweetness and enough salt to balance uh, that sweetness. In a word, perfect, the end of the quote. Exactly. But the distance between the uh, reading and the eating is infinite. The perfect croissant, the so much drama in life, Oxford as a place to be enjoyed for itself, not choosing what our teachers in effect infelicitously, no falsehood to be uh, in the most important part of our souls. The prayer of Pan that we may be beautiful inside. Such are the main steps in the philosophical learning, in the discovery of all that is. The end of the second part of the essay on the perfect croissant. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.